And now we have the pleasure of hearing from a member of our teaching team, Melinda Jean-Louis. Please join me in welcoming Melinda. I'd like to pray for us before we start. So, God, um, be with us. Help us and let us be encouraged to be and inspired and even motivated to face poverty with grace, power, and compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I'm Melinda, and I have the pleasure of continuing our new sermon series, How Do I Think About... And today, we're going to talk about poverty. I think poverty is a controversial and very difficult topic because it's something that's really hard for us to just, like, look at, right? Like, face-to-face, be close to it. And for those of you who know and for those of you who don't know, um, I was raised in the capital of a country that was affectionately known to its natives when it was discovered in the 15th century as the Pearl of the Antilles which is very different to what it's commonly referred to now as the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. But I just call it Haiti. (laughs) Or Aitisheli, which is a Haitian Creole term for Haiti, my sweetheart. I've spoken about Haiti on this stage before, but before I say anything else about Haiti, I want to start by putting my relationship with Haiti into context for you. I love Haiti. I'm Haiti's biggest advocate. I don't let people talk bad about Haiti in my presence. Um, So I'm not living in America as an escape from Haiti. I'm here because I get to choose to be here. Um, And I would have absolutely no problem going back to Haiti to live if that was where I felt like I needed to be at this time. My parents live there. My sister lives there. And I have a lot of close relatives who live there. I visit there very regularly. I have no problem being there. But not many other Haitians. I haven't met many Haitians here in America who would say the same thing. Because living in Haiti is really hard. They came here for a better life. Um, The poverty, the political instability, the insecurity, which trickles down to every aspect of the country's infrastructure, is not for the faint of heart. It isn't. But for me my life would probably be a lot easier if I was living in Haiti, to be honest. So, I know, sounds confusing, but I I didn't grow up in poverty in Haiti. I grew up in the middle class of Haiti. So, but because of that, I didn't really fully appreciate the extent of the poverty of the people who lived around me because it was so familiar to me. It was home after all, and I was fortunate to have parents who had a few businesses. I got to go to an American accredited private school in Haiti in a country where 80% of the population was illiterate at the time. So can you imagine what it would be like in this room if only one in five of us could understand the connection card? While the literacy rate has improved since I graduated high school, but it's still not ideal. But because reading was not universal in Haiti, so in churches, our general mode of communicating and getting to know God's word was by rote memorization. And so some people could understand the Bible and read it, and other people couldn't. And for those of us who couldn't, you memorize it. And that was the way that for those people, that they felt like they had some access to God, you know, to know God, this God who was hidden within the pages of the Bible that not everyone could understand. Hiring a maid, again, 
So labor is cheap in Haiti because, you know, poverty, right? So um, the average Haitian at the time was making $2 US per day. $2. But if you could afford to pay your maid like 5,000 Haitian gourds, which was equivalent to about 125 US dollars per month, that person could actually afford to pay rent and somehow hire somebody to watch their kids while they're coming to your house and watching your kids. I know it's crazy, but it happens and people make it work. And they were even able to maybe like send their kids to school because in Haiti, being consistently educated in childhood, again, is not something that everybody had access to. The public school system in Haiti usually had striking happening. The teachers would strike because they weren't getting regularly paid by the government. So if you wanted your kids to have an education, you sent them to private school. My grandmother, um, her name is Solina. She turned 80 last October. I have a picture. When she was a girl, she was sent away to live with a woman, a bourgeois woman, or which is equivalent to middle-class woman. Um, this woman paid for my grandmother's meals, um, her school supplies, her primary education. So she got to go to, from primary education to sixth grade. And in exchange, my grandmother worked for her as a child maid, or some people like to call it child slavery. Again, another controversial topic. <laughs> But when I asked my grandmother about that experience just a few months ago, she says to me, she was grateful for that. She got to have an education. She says she was treated well. Hunger is and was a very real reality in the lives of people in Haiti. People are so hungry that some people had to eat dirt. They would eat mud what I heard were called, what's called mud cakes. While some others would have to eat animals that people in the United States would never dare consider as a meal because it would offend the ASPCA. Coming from the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere has negatively, unfortunately, negatively, definitely negatively influenced the way that I perceived myself and my value in the world. And it wasn't really until recently that I fully appreciated how poverty and how others defined it had limited my own perspective on the goodness and holiness of God existing in those spaces. And over the last few years, I've been challenged to face my own internalized racism and bias born out of this deeply false assumption that others are better than me, Therefore, the way they do things is probably more like how God would want someone to do them because, hey, they get to have money as a result. And those of us who aren't doing what God wants, quote unquote, would have less, right? Ten years ago, on January 12, 2010, Haiti had an earthquake. As a graduate student at the time, I was traveling back from being home in Haiti for the holidays, back to New York City that same day. I remember my parents drove me to the airport and um, I was leaving that afternoon around like 1.30 and the earthquake happened at around 4.30. When I landed in Florida from my layover, I remember one of my friends called me and she said, Melinda, I have some bad news. There was an earthquake in Haiti. And I was like, are you sure it's not Tahiti? <laughs> Because I was just there. Like, 
an unknown number of people died that day. They estimated it's about 250 to 300,000 people died in less than a minute. But because we had to do mass graves due to all the bodies all over the place, no one will ever really know. I was glued to CNN those weeks after the earthquake. And, um, and I remember there were a few American Christian leaders, at least the ones with a platform, right, who were saying in the media, Haiti deserved that. They made a pact with the devil, so of course they get an earthquake. These leaders were referring to the spiritual practice of voodoo, again, that's often mischaracterized in the media, that still exists in Haiti and how my ancestors, my ancestors believed that they were empowered through a voodoo ceremony by the divinities that they followed to fight enslavement and go on to win the Haitian Revolution and become the first black republic. Connecting with poverty is challenging. And in this country, some people feel really passionate about fighting for the poor, making sure that they have programs and systems to support and uplift them, while other people feel really strongly that those stuck in poverty are there by their own design, blaming the poor because of whatever perceived failing you may have seen them have, right? Whether it's the wrong religion, the wrong values, the wrong practices with money, food, any other affiliation, you could fill in the blanks. Um, and here I've seen that political campaigns really get really heated about this. And a, and, a, and, a campaign, and a candidate could either rise or fall based on how they handle the poor. But as I've been thinking about this a lot, I think the part that I found the most bothersome is this assumption that I've come across that somehow poverty has this inverse relationship with the presence of God and God's blessings. So the more poverty is there, the less God is there in that space, in those people, in that neighborhood, or in my case, in my country. And the more God is there, the less you should see poverty, right? And before we move on to what inviting Jesus into this has meant for me, I encourage you all to take a moment and think for yourself about you. What are your assumptions about poverty? How do you feel about money, wealth, power, and what it means about a person. Jesus' most remembered sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he shares what is commonly referred to as the Beatitudes or blessings. And this sermon is found in two of the four Gospels, I think. I, I checked, I made sure. But um, the Gospels are considered the accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible. It's found in Matthew and Luke. And today we're going to focus on Luke's version of the sermon. So I'm going to read it for you all. Luke 6, 20 to 26. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, 
for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Jesus makes some bold statements here. I mean, <laughs> and because I think similar to us now, people back then had similar assumptions about poverty. And as an aside, I didn't grow up learning Luke's version of Jesus' sermon. I grew up learning Matthew's version. Matthew refers to being poor in spirit, and Luke just says poor. Matthew says hunger and thirst for righteousness, and Luke just says hunger. And the only reason I could come up with as to possibly why two people heard the same thing and came up with very different versions of the sermon is because they were two different people, right? The same way that everybody here is going to leave hearing me say something very differently because of our own life experiences and maybe the person that we're talking to. And, the, and like from what I learned about Luke in Bible classes when I was growing up is that Luke was a doctor. So maybe Luke was just more focused on the physical nature of things. I don't know, but, you know, I digress. Anyway, <laughs> um, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus clearly doesn't see poverty as a sign of moral failing or being forsaken by God. God's kingdom belongs to them. That is putting them, putting the poor in direct relationship with the royalty and majesty of God. In our day, poverty is something that we're more comfortable with someone coming out of. But if someone is in poverty, I don't see Jesus saying that they're any less part of the kingdom of God. Actually, in stark contrast to the blessing of the poor, you see Jesus saying in the next section, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. I shared some of what poverty looked like in my life growing up. Illiteracy, hunger, no access to nutritious foods, forced to do whatever it takes to survive, even if it meant doing something that looked appalling or horrible to your neighbor. But when you boil it down to its core, I think poverty is simply a lack of riches. And traditionally, riches tend to allow for us to have power and privilege and above all, influence in the spaces where a lack of those things doesn't allow for you to be able to control the narrative that's being disseminated about you. And that's why I want you all to pay attention to what Jesus mentions about what will be said about you if you fall on one side of the fence of poverty or the other. In the first section, those who are poor, hungry, and weeping, Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult and i'm sorry and insult you and reject your name as evil while for the rich well-fed and laughing jesus mentions woe to you when people speak well of you for that is how your ancestors treated the false prophets it'll be fine okay so i think this is where so much of my own pain and even some anger around poverty comes from because people who don't have power don't get to tell stories from their perspectives and so the stories that are being told about them are from the perspective of the powerful who often stand to gain something when people who don't have power are hated, excluded, or insulted. Poverty leads to less influence and riches definitely allows for more. So of course, the rich would have more people speaking well of them, which I think Jesus is warning about here to the people who were listening to him at the time and even to us today. But I understand it's human nature to look for practical ways to determine the presence of God, right? And poverty is a human problem. 
But even Jesus re- re- reminds the, the listeners at the time of his own humanity here, referring to himself as the son of man, letting them know that he, was, he himself was born of a woman. So he, you know, uh, anyway, it's a whole other thing. So but, but, um, without a guidebook, we use the tools at our disposal that we've been using since the beginning in the, in the Garden of Eden, looking for what looks good and what looks inherently evil. And one easy way for us to make that determination is to look at poverty. And this reality, unfortunately, has trickled into faith spaces. And that makes me very angry. (laughs) In this country, Christianity has amassed so much money and power that whoever the Southern Baptist Convention endorses for president, more often than not, becomes president. (laughs) Isn't that a little crazy? These churches have so much wealth and power that they get to decide the leadership of a nation, controlling a story that will live on for generations to come. And then those nations that have less power or influence, for example, Haiti, right? They're demonized in the press. Its tragedies are co-opted. Its beliefs seen as superstitious and not as developed simply because, in my opinion, It hasn't amassed enough wealth to be able to influence the narrative that is being said about it throughout the world. And so we have world leaders, y'all know them, who are saying hateful things about where I come from simply because it's poor and no one will hold them into account. But that's all global, right? How about here in New York City? (laughs) So which borough is notoriously the one that people are scared to go to for some reason or another. Is it Manhattan? No. Is it, is it Brooklyn? No. Is it Staten Island? Queens? Yeah, maybe Staten Island. It's possible. <laughs> How about Queens or the Bronx? Which one is it? Y'all think? I mean, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, it's the Bronx. I mean, for me, it's the Bronx. I hate to admit it, though. But before I moved here, like 12 years ago, I was told, don't go to the Bronx. Stay away from the Bronx. Well, when I did a little research preparing for this talk, where do you think the poorest neighborhood in New York City is? Yeah. The per capita income in the Bronx is $17,575 a year. In one neighborhood, a little less than half of its um, inhabitants make, make less than $25,000 for a family of four per year. Wow. I mean, you all live in New York City. I don't know how people do it. I'm like, wow. But when you're living in poverty, you don't have the power to go and share your story from your perspective. So someone who would come travel abroad to Haiti and tell me about the Bronx is not someone from there. And so the story lives on. And like I said before, this reality has trickled into faith. And I think this is what has bothered me the most because the fact that people whose voices have gotten the most say in sacred spaces are the ones with the most quote-unquote blessings or money. While I give these religious institutions hate, they're all due respect, like Vatican City, Southern Baptist Convention, hey, more power to you. But a byproduct of their influence is that it silences the voices of the people whose religious or spiritual experiences are not so laden with gold. And this is a bias that I've recently been challenged to question in my own life, and I'll just share like one example for you guys. So 
Every year or two, the river takes a team to go to India and work with an organization called ASHA, who works with the children and women in the slums in New Delhi. And the last time we went was in 2018. I was lucky enough to be part of the team, and I didn't know what to expect, even though I had heard some stories, but no one was telling me a lot of details. <laughs> but, um, and while I was open to, what, hap to what, what could happen, I had my own baggage that I went with me across the world to India. Because in my past experience, I had experience with missions coming to Haiti. And while I appreciated the heart behind why they came and what they were trying to do, it often felt like the, um, they were always concerned with us trying to learn the American way of doing things. And they were less concerned with what, if anything, is already happening in Haiti that God is already doing. And so that was my baggage. Those were my judgments that I walked into India with. <clears throat> And I am really, really grateful for John and Sarah Firsty, one of two of our pastors, who did such a great job setting our expectations from day one. And I remember say they, they, and they said, being in India is going to be an exercise in suspending judgment. We weren't going into the slums to tell them what's right and what's wrong. And really, that attitude changed everything for me. I was struck by the joy and the generosity of these people who lived in homes smaller than this stage that I am standing on. But more than the joy, I was struck by the blessing of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of people who seemed to never, ever have to say her name. God was there. And I remember calling my mom halfway through the trip, telling her, I feel like I came to India to go to church. <laughs> But not once did we ever step into church. The blessing was already alive and well, and I didn't have to do anything to stoke its fire. All I had to do was show up and hang out. One experience there will always stay with me. Sarah, Mandy, Makiva, and I were attending a women's meeting, and we were invited to offer prayer for the women. And none of these women could understand a word that we were saying. There was only one woman there translating for four of us, and the room was filled with women, okay? So at some point, we couldn't pray for everybody, and all we could do was kind of like lay hands and touch people and hope that Holy Spirit would, you know, know what they needed prayer for. And a few days later, John and Sarah had already left, and the three of us were left going to do some more home visits, and one of the women that was there said to us that someone was healed there. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, we didn't say anything. <laughs> but God did something. <laughs> Thank you. We weren't able to, quote unquote, do the prayer. <laughs> like, you know? But these Sikh, Hindu, and Muslim women got to have a miraculous experience with Jesus. And they got to meet him. And they didn't have to do anything. Oh my God, that is powerful. And that for me is what I think it means to say, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. They didn't have any stipulations or mode of operating. They were present. They needed help and they showed up and that's it. And God in God's matchless mercy and grace just met them and saved them right then and there. So with that, please forgive me, I'm a crier. <laughs> um, my first practical suggestion is to ask yourself, where do I need help right now? 
and practice showing up and asking for help. One blessing of the poor is that they know they need help and they have no problem asking for it. But help is not something that people who are well off are comfortable asking for because our pride gets in the way. And there's a lot of shame, unfortunately, associated with needing help. But I think the more comfortable we become with our own need for help, the less judgment will keep us from connecting with our neighbor who may need help as well. My second suggestion is when you encounter poverty, because you will, take a deep breath and remind yourself the kingdom of God is there. The reason I say take a deep breath first is because you're going to need some oxygen to flow to your brain and take away some of that defensiveness that poverty just inherently stirs up within any one of us. We start to feel guilty or pressured to help. You know the feeling. I know we've all felt it in this room. On the subway, you know, the sidewalk. Because there's something about poverty that usually starts to put our walls up and lead us to believe that poverty is trying to say something about you. But I don't believe Jesus' words were ever intentioned to bring about guilt, nausea, or shame. Because that's not the currency of Jesus. That's the currency of hell. The accuser who's always trying to stoke the rumors and keep anyone from connecting with the poor. My dad had this really sweet millionaire Christian investor friend when I was growing up. And uh, I remember the first time he attempted to come to Haiti, he could barely stand to be in the country that he had to cut his trip short and stay for only two days. The day he was there and the day the next day he left. Because the first day, oh my God, this man was crying, weeping, filled with guilt because, oh my God, I have so much and they don't have. And, and then this man returns to the States, tells his family about his experience in Haiti. And then he has a daughter who like, she goes to Mexico and then she's again stricken by guilt and shame, comes back to the States, makes her whole American family eat only one meal a day suffering malnutrition because, oh my gosh, they have so much. And I don't think anyone living in Haiti or Mexico or India or even the Bronx want anybody to go and feel badly and stop eating on their account. I'm telling you, I don't think they need that. <laughs> but what I imagine they would want is to be seen as fully beloved, worthy people, blessed by Holy Spirit to carry the kingdom of God. People who may have something to tell you about God. Amen. Blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So let's come a little closer. And if you choose to take a step in that direction, my last suggestion is... To trust that, that it's okay to need God's help to fill in the blanks. And you can do this by using what I like to call the help me prayer. I don't know if y'all have ever heard this prayer. It's a very simple prayer. It goes, help me. And you just say it in, in your heart. You say it silently. I use it all the time when I'm walking into like a meeting or a hard conversation or an interaction. It's going to make me feel a little inadequate. And it helps me feel less afraid and I know I'm going to get the help that I need. Because you don't really have to go anywhere. You don't have to go to the Bronx. You don't have to go to India. But you're going to face poverty. It's going to come to you because it's all over the place. 
However, but if you choose to interact with it, however you've identified it in your life, wherever you see it, it's okay to not know what to do or if you should be interacting or how you should be interacting. But the kingdom of God is there. And that means her kingdom is there for both of you. Facilitating a blessing that neither one of you could even imagine because God's grace and incredible mercy is available. And it's enough. It's enough to fill in the blanks however you choose to show up. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, God, because you are here. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. May we experience more of your kingdom in our lives every day. In Jesus' name, amen.